Hello everyone, it's May 8th, 2018. This week we do our best forensic analysis of a photo of a parachuting payload fairing, and we discuss the pros and cons of sending a helicopter to Mars. I for one am all for it. It makes way more sense than sending a boat and liftoff. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 157 of the World Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Good morning, David. Good morning. So we were just talking about a really cool project you have coming up. Did you want to talk about that? Because you seem to be very excited. <laughs> yeah, I, I am very, very, very excited. Um, but like, let, let me wait a little bit until like we actually have begun construction. <laughs> well, the listeners now know that it involves construction. Sure. And we're not talking about a model airplane, so Yeah, well yeah, so it's it's at a children's museum. Like that that should give you a pretty good category. But yeah, the the grant hasn't quite been written yet. Like there's no reason to think that we're not gonna get the grant. Oh, okay. But, you know, just like a little bit of caution. What is it? You don't want to count your chickens before they hatch? Or is it eggs? Yeah, Whatever. Yeah. It'll be interesting to hear more about it later because uh, this sounds like something very fun and something that uh I guess when I was a kid, I had been to a couple of children's museums, but nothing like what hopefully you're going to be doing because that would be awesome. Well, there, there's this really great one in San Francisco called the Exploratorium. Um, it's out on the Embarcadero, which is like the docks that like originally built the city. And like a lot of the Embarcadero is actually like fake grounds that is basically like a hundred years of trash and sunk ships and dirt piled on top of them until the the shoreline reached farther and farther outward <laughs> but uh it, it's out on it's out on this pier and it's a uh, peerless i guess is the horrible pun that i don't want to use but i mean it is really 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 amazing um they have so many amazing little exhibits that are all practical so they have like some really great practical physics experiments that show uh, like uh, vibrational resonancy using long uh, rods that are asymmetric so that they have a resonant frequency that's different in two different directions so you can flick them and they carve out lisaju patterns like just in the air they they move fast enough that like persistence of vision uh, kind of shows it and then um they have like uh psychological experiments where like you can play the prisoner's dilemma um and things like that i mean it's it's just it's so amazing and like you could run around all day and never see everything and it's every single thing is fascinating and you want to spend you know an hour which with mm -hmm. each thing um it's just so good so like this is not as cool as that but like if you have any fondness for children's museums like we need to get you there definitely sounds like fun so yeah we'll be uh interested to hear more about what you come up with because uh yeah you're brainstorming as we speak about uh about exactly uh, what this is going to be so um shall we move on to this week in spaceflight history what winners do we have who do we have here just a couple it looks like yeah just just two winners valentin frank and ben hallert um both they guessed the event, but they didn't tell me why exactly the clue applies. So the clue was, this dawn isn't so peaceful. And so this week in spaceflight history is the 14th of May, 2010. It was the launch of Ross Vet 
on STS-132. So Rosvet is an ISS module on the or- the Russian orbital segment, and it flew up inside of Space Shuttle Atlantis um, with some piggybacked supplies. Um, so they are a radiator and an experiment airlock are strapped to the outside, but not usable to Rosvet. And so those were actually designed for MLM, which is uh, the multi-purpose laboratory module, also called Nauka, uh, which is Russian for science. So Nauka is used over and over and over in Russian spaceflight. But basically, uh, Nauka is hopefully going to fly this year. Probably not. Yeah, Pro- probably it's not. probably going to get pushed back. But last I heard, it was scheduled for the end of this year. And NASA had contracted to bring up a certain amount of equipment just to deck out Nauka. And so Russia and NASA worked out this really cool arrangement where NASA could fulfill their MLM contract, but they could also bring up Rosvet and they could do it without adding any additional flights, which are very expensive, obviously. So basically they brought um, Rosvet up with some MLM equipment docked to it. They killed both of those birds with, with one shuttle, I guess. So, uh, back to Rosvet. ISS, you know, is super expensive, and so there's been a lot of stop and go with different modules on station. Um, and one of the things that ended up getting canceled was a docking and storage module. Actually, I think there were supposed to be two of them on the Russian orbital segment, and they got canceled. So those responsibilities kind of got piled onto this uh, MRM is what they call the mini research module, even though uh, there's no research actually going on inside of it. But it, it kind of talks about its heritage a little bit. So the, the major thing that they lost with the cancellation of these research modules, besides the science, was they lost a docking port. So obviously, adding a module that has one docking port on each side doesn't multiply the number of docking ports you have. But what it does is it um, extends that docking port out away from the core of the station, the central stack, which gives you more clearance. So they actually lost an available visiting vehicle docking port when they put the multi-purpose logistics module permanently on the U.S. side. And so by adding Rosvet, they actually extended this docking port farther towards Nadir and actually made it available again for visiting vehicles, um, which was something that was that was really important. We, you know, were bringing more visiting vehicles to station than than it could actually handle, or we were limiting our options basically uh, of where we could put these things. And then, you know, on top of that, this thing is is six feet tall. I'm sorry, it, it's six meters tall, and that's a lot of storage space. Um, obviously, the end caps kind of cut some of that off, but this is a decent amount of, of storage space that you can that you can utilize. So nobody, you know, is arguing with that. So back to the clue. Rosvet means dawn in Russian. You know what the word for peace is because uh, it's in the in the notes. But did you? Did you make this connection at the time? No, I did not. I've been wondering this whole time, but it's starting to dawn on me that it has something, <laughs> has something to do with Mir. So it's not so, because Mir means peace, so it's not so exactly. peaceful. Is this because this module was originally meant for Mir or had it must have had something to do with it? Not originally meant for Mir, but it, it mirrors uh, a module on Mir very closely. 
and I do mean mirrors. So the mirror docking module was also launched on Atlantis and it has a very similar design. Um, and it was also used to extend a docking port on mirror so that they didn't have to move modules around to make room for shuttle. And what's really interesting is that, uh, the mirror docking module had a, a very similar physical shape, even though it was a mirror image. Ha ha ha. Um, it, it, it was a mirror image of Rosfet. But Mir, the Mir docking module also had two payloads piggybacked on it when it went up uh, on the shuttle. Um, they were both uh, solar panels. And uh, those got used pretty much immediately, even though Rosvet's piggybacked uh, components are still not in use. But but there you go. That's that's the clue. Rosvet means dawn. Mir means peace. So if this dawn isn't so peaceful, it's a dawn that is similar, but different. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, that's a good clue. I like that. Yeah. Fun with language. Yeah. And, and so every, uh, uh, both of our winners got uh, the Rosvet Dawn connection, but nobody got the Mirror connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So only partial credit, huh? Yeah. A very, very, very close partial credit, let's say. Cool. All right. Uh, what is our clue for next week then? All right. Next week in 1978, the clue is they always say they're there to study one body, but they wind up squinting into the sun looking for another. Yep, you got me there. Uh, they always say they're there to study one body, but they wind up squinting into the sun looking for another. Next week in 1978. All right. Well, if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, uh, hopefully this one actually is in English, then give us a tweet with the hashtag <laughs> this week SF and good luck. Not a whole lot to go on, but we have a really cool tweet from Elon Musk of a payload fairing suspended by a parachute floating in a beautiful sunset, actually. So at least I think it's a sunset and not a dawn. Do we know which fairing this is? He doesn't say. So, I mean, I I guess it could be any fairing from a launch that happens near sunrise or sunset. Uh, So Valentin Frank says, given the time of day, this either has to be Paz or Iridium 5. So it's one of those two missions. So we've done a little bit of counting on our fingers trying to figure out time zones. And yeah, I I think Valentin might be right. This is probably from Iridium or Paz. Um, because they both flew around sunrise on the west coast. So this seems like it's likely to be the Pacific Ocean in the morning. But so, so yeah, like it, it's like it, it's an older photo that they've held back for a while, probably because they take a lot of photos. Because you're saying you couldn't, you couldn't understand why they might be holding this back. And it's like, well, they take a lot of photos and they release so few of them. And then so many of the ones that are released are just like Elon going, okay, I can't take it anymore. Just put it out there. So, so that's my guess. This fairing, whichever it is, uh, this was not obviously a complete success. I mean, this, you know, proves that the parachute part works but uh they haven't stuck the landing just yet but there was the one that i know that i think there was even an image posted of it floating very serenely in the ocean so that that might be this one so we know that they're getting close but not quite there yet so the the floating fairing was from the pause launch which possibly could have been i mean the time frame is right for uh for a sunrise launch so yeah that might be that'd be interesting if it was the same <laughs> the same fairing all right well let's uh let's go ahead and move on then to our next story a little bit uh there's a little bit more to say here actually quite a bit probably and that is uh the mars 2020 helicopter yeah so how do you feel about the mars 2020 helicopter because it's always made me laugh i think it's pretty cool and i guess we are going to talk about exactly what the downsides might be but i think it's a really interesting concept i think first and foremost i think it's amazing that this is just me not being able to 
fully intuit uh, how helicopters work, but I don't understand how this thing works <laughs> on Mars. Um, that maybe more than anything, I don't, I, st- I still don't get, and I've read about it, and I, I just don't understand how with an atmosphere so thin this thing is supposed to fly. But obviously, that's something that they have worked out. So just seeing a helicopter in the Martian quote unquote sky um, would be just an amazing thing to witness or I guess not seeing it fly but you know seeing the images that it brings back I think it's pretty neat uh but you know there are some good points about whether or or not it belongs on this mission because the Mars 2020 mission is a very important one I mean this is you know the, the next big big one I mean it's the next curiosity yeah so I guess maybe we should talk well, about that. Yeah. So so here's I, I say that it's made me laugh because it always seemed like such a nebulous concept that didn't make a lot of sense. Like why fly on a on a world where it's easier to drive around? But the thing is that the helicopter is already built and it's already been proven and it it works. Uh, Mars 2020 as a overall mission um, is coming up on its key decision point D later this month, which is a huge, huge turning point for the mission. Um, the question now is, are they going to include this helicopter, um, which is a technology demonstrator? It's not there to do science. It's there to prove that it works. And I've got a quote here from Space News. Um, Ken Farley, the project scientist for Mars 2020, said later at the meeting uh, that the project expects NASA headquarters to make a decision very shortly about adding the helicopter. Then he goes on to say, the Mars 2020 project has done everything that is necessary to accommodate that helicopter, which is interesting, even though Ken Farley also said that he doesn't like the helicopter and that the the Mars 2020 project as a whole kind of wishes they could just sweep it under the rug. And the reason for that is that the team sees it as a science detractor. They see it as a, as a distraction from the mm-hmm. from the main mission which yeah it's definitely a distraction from the main mission of Mars 2020 however it's not that big of a distraction if you look at how long this rover is probably going to be doing its thing on Mars like the extended mission is not something that you can count on but you can pretty much accept it as a thing that's going to happen and with that kind of context which i think it's reasonable to kind of include this in our thinking i think that you know, 30 days with a secondary thing flying around isn't that big of a deal. I mean, this is just for 30 days, so it's not the whole length of the mission. And and I don't think that they're going to go beyond that. But plus, my guess would be that they would have separate personnel devoted to the helicopter. So when they say a science distraction or a science detractor, I'm assuming that they're not talking about the fact or they're not talking about the public's relationship to this, right? Because that's probably yeah. like later to come down the line. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I th- think that he just means that this is going to be something that will get in the way of them doing science, but I'm not so sure that that's the case. Right. It might be, but this is not completely... The whole idea is to have this helicopter scout paths for the rover, which could maybe you know make things go faster on future missions. So maybe not this one, but maybe future rovers could have a little helicopter that can fly ahead and can scout out you know good sites and good paths to take through the rocks and among the rocks. That technology at some point has to be proven, so why not do it now? Um, I mean, they could have included it with some other mission. I mean, had the timing been good, I guess maybe putting it on like maybe like InSight might have been better, do you think? I mean, is that something that they could have done? They can't at this point, obviously, but... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Or or maybe an experimental lander like ExoMars, ill-fated though it turned out to be. Yeah, it is a very interesting technology demonstrator. I mean, I think that this really could be useful and could really have some very interesting applications for science and so forth. But you got to test it out at some point. And I guess these 
these people are just a little bit upset, or at least, you know, this one particular individual, Ken Farley, is a bit upset that it's just happening on his watch, you know, on his project. Uh, but I think it's great. Anyway, there there you go. That's the Mars 2020 helicopter. Uh, I really hope it flies because it'd be really cool to have a drone, a drone on Mars. That would be cool to have a Earth-type drone, right? So you have like four propellers, but I guess... Is the propeller no four rotors? But um, I guess that's not possible because one thing that that I guess does account for the thin atmosphere is that the actual body of the helicopter is just a fourteen by fourteen by fourteen centimeters cubed, but the rotor is I think something like a full meter in diameter. So yeah. that's a pretty large span. It's it's two meter or two uh, two rotors uh, stacked on top of each other, spinning right. in opposite directions, which is pretty much the easiest way to do this yeah geez I, I really wish that the body was a 14 millimeter cube that'd be tiny i think it weighs something like was it 2.2 pounds like somewhere right around two pounds and i don't know and by the way i'm never sure when i read stuff like this do they mean two pounds on earth and so it would be about mm. a third of that mm. on mars i'm never yeah they're, they're talking about yeah like a, a kilogram in mass not a not a pound in weight they probably saw one kilogram typed into Google and go, oh, that's 2.2 pounds. Our readers will know what that is, even though 2.2 pounds is different than one kilogram of mass. Yeah, that's a bit confusing. So really, this is, I guess, yeah, less than a pound, but it has a uh, a full meter in you know span as far as the rotor goes. So and then, like you said, there's two of them. So I suppose that does about, you know, work out to an atmosphere so thin. I mean, like Mars is less than mm-hmm. one one hundredth of what it is on Earth. So the idea that in the future, like, I mean, just imagine people on Mars and they wanted to fly around. I don't think helicopters or, mm-hmm. or airplanes might be feasible. No, it's it's worse than it is here on Earth, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. I, I think we kind of take it for granted because I see planes in you know helicopters all day, every day. <laughs> They're just everywhere. Yeah. We have a nice atmosphere to swim through like fish. Time for some short and sweet. We got three of them. And what's our first one? Okay, so Firefly is going to take over Slick to West in Vandenberg. So previously it was used for Delta II launches, but now Slick to West will hopefully host both Alpha and Beta launches in the future. Those are the two Firefly launchers. Firefly Aerospace says that they will keep much of the existing infrastructure with minimal rework. They're also on the prowl for a low inclination launch site on the East Coast, and they say they're looking at two traditional locations, Cape Canaveral and the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport at Wallops Island, as well as a new kit on the block, the as-yet non-existent mm-hmm. spaceport Camden in Georgia. Next up, SLS Mobile Launcher needs an upgrade. Not only has uh, the SLS program suffered delays, but its mobile launcher is having issues. The Government Accountability Office has raised concerns that the base of the mobile launcher is not structurally sound enough to support an SLS mission. Uh, there were low stress margins found in critical locations on the launcher's base and in some cases, negative margins. The flaw in the modeling of the mobile launcher base was made by steel contractor RSNH when converting the base from Constellation to SLS. Luckily, NASA and one of their contractors have developed some clever fixes based on NASA heritage, and the mobile launcher itself should not delay SLS. And finally, uh, JWST testing reveals a new issue. Dang. So during recent testing of the James Webb Space Telescope at a Northrop Grumman facility in Southern California, it was 
was discovered that a few screws and washers came loose. They literally found them on the ground. Right now, it's not known for sure where the hardware came from, but it's believed it belongs to the telescope's sunshield cover. The items were discovered when the spacecraft element of JWST was moved from an acoustic testing chamber to another chamber for vibrational testing. According to JWST program director Greg Robinson, incidents like these are why such extensive testing is done in the first place. Quote, we do it now, we find it now, we fix it, and we launch a good spacecraft. It looks like just a minor issue, at least. That's what the preliminary analysis seems to say. Yeah, but just one more delay, so whatever. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have one small correction. So last week, I, I had never heard the term zodiacal light, and you apparently had... I guess, misheard the term, uh, according to <laughs> someone on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, this, this sounds familiar, but obviously I, de I defined it wrong. So th this comes from 27,394 days, 27,394 days. Did the math is just over seven years, and I can't figure out what this is in reference to. Because at first I was like, oh, I wonder if that's the length of a of a Mars transfer orbit, but it's it's not. Maybe maybe it's some sort of weird cycling orbit. Anyway, so I'll just go ahead and read this uh, this tweet. They say I think it's actually a band, and they say I think to be polite, but they're actually correct. I think it's actually a band of brightness in the ecliptic or zodiac, hence the name, caused by the sunlight reflecting off of higher concentration of particles in the plane of the solar system. And it's totally right. Like if you go out into the into the night sky you can actually see the zodiacal light as sort of like a, a second milky way almost um in the ecliptic this brighter kind of cone shape uh just you know compared to the horizon uh it's kind of this triangle of light that yeah is from interplanetary dust particles which is pretty awesome it's something that i'm not aware of ever having seen myself um and certainly it's not something that i can just given the places that I've lived, I mean, you have to be in very uh, low light pollution areas. So I'm not, I've never seen it. Um, is this something that you've seen? Like you've actually looked at and seen yourself? Yep. Oh, really? Okay. Wow. Yep. That's, that's pretty cool. See, that's the nice thing about growing up in a desert is like yeah. the night sky is very, very clear. To be honest, I've never been to a real desert, at least not the kind that I'm thinking of, you know, like you know, like the typical desert. And it's something that I really want to do. Um, that probably sounds weird to people who live in deserts, you know, just because I guess it comes down to personal preference, but um, they sound fascinating to me. And, and yeah, just beautiful night night skies. Uh, and I, it, there's yep. so much to see. And I really, really want to spend some time in the middle of nowhere in a desert. That sounds like a vacation to me. Uh, one day I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you to Edwards at some point. Isn't there too much light pollution because it's an Air Force base? Yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, if you're on the Air Force base, you're going to have some light pollution but all you have to do is like drive like a half hour off base mm -hmm. and you're in like 99% dark skies like compared to the rest of the country and if you drive like an hour or two you're in literally skies that you can't find darker skies in North America wow like yeah it, it just and, and I mean not that there aren't dark skies all over North America it's just like you get into the darkest category where it's like super 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 dark Growing up mostly on the East Coast, it's not just light pollution, but there's also a lot of humidity, and that, that plays a big role. So it's just hard to find really deep, dark skies. They just don't really exist in this part of the country, um, mm -hmm. at least not like they do out West. Yeah, maybe one day I'll see some zodiacal light. Time to move on then to our upcoming spaceflight events. We just got one launch. 
the launch of Gaofun 5, and that is from an unknown pad in Taiyuan, and that's occurring on May 8th, and it is uh, aboard a Long March 4C. Gaofun is a series of civilian Earth observation satellites developed and launched for the China High Definition Earth Observation System. Or I guess CHEOS is how you pronounce that? C-H-E-O-S? Sure. Uh, so this is a state-sponsored program aimed to develop a near-real-time all-weather global surveillance network consisting of a of satellite, near-space airships, and aerial observation platforms. The launch window is, uh, as I said, on May 8th. And that is uh, starting at 1820 UTC through 1846 UTC. So that's a 46-minute launch window. Uh, probably nowhere to watch this live. But uh, just so you know, it is happening. And uh, yeah, uh, if you can watch it, go ahead and do so. Alrighty, uh, That is your single upcoming spaceflight event. That means it's the end of the show. So let's go ahead and deorbit and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at RonaldJenkins.com. And some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks to our five dollars up patreon supporters in the ground control chat room listening to the show live you can connect with us on twitter and reddit at orbital podcast you can send questions and comments to info at the for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links please visit our website at the be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies all right and that's all so we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody